A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You can stand and join us. in his presence on holy ground. You know, my husband prays for our granddaughters. This is how he prays, and it's such, a, it's such a picture to me, and I know that it's going on. He prays that, that those girls would have these great big warring angels walking all around them, and that as they walk, not only are they not gonna walk into trouble, but they're not gonna get trouble from other people. I think it's a great prayer. I love it, and this song, is a visual, isn't it? We do stand on holy ground. Where you walk becomes a place where you are bringing Christ. It is such a powerful song, isn't it? And his angels all around, thank you, Jesus. Well, I'm not gonna go on and on. I am so pleased. Um, some of you are new here, but and so you don't know that our wonderful previous pastor martin and his wife are here visiting us today but they are a great and tremendous blessing to us so make sure you get to know them after the service so welcome we're glad to see you 
Well, Father, we do praise and thank you so much. We thank you for Pastor Martin being here with us today and for Caroline, who is such a blessing. Just to see her face is, brings me joy. So we just thank you for them. We ask your blessing upon them. And we are uh, anxious to hear what you have for us to take into our hearts today through Pastor Martin. We thank you for the church body here. We thank you, Lord, for um, our desert singers who are such a blessing to us and bring us in praise before your throne. We thank you, Lord, for all those who, um, who share in our joy together on Sunday mornings here. And Lord, we do lift this service up to you. We want it to be a blessing in your sight that all things here would be worshipful unto you that they would we would recognize that you are King of Kings and Lord of Lords and that your love is everlasting. And we praise and thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, everybody. You know, I just love it when things come together for good. Um, as Linda spoke about the, the angels and protecting um, your holy ground, when I think of the holy ground, I think of also our homes and our minds. And this last week, I asked for prayer for a friend of mine that was going through some real darkness. And I encouraged her to get out her anointing oil and anoint her home and to reclaim the home uh, as Christ's. And then I also for her mind. And she sent me a text message and said, the darkness has lifted. Reach for his hand. The Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. Now, Billy Graham wrote this next part. Over many years when I was going through a dark period, I prayed and prayed, but the heavens seemed to be brass. I felt as though God had disappeared and that I was alone with my trial and burden. It was the darkness that blocked my soul. And he wrote to his mother about the experience. And he said, I'll never forget her reply. Son, there are many times when God withdraws to test your faith. He wants you to trust him in the darkness. Now, son, reach up by faith in the fog and you will find his hand will be there. In tears, Billy knelt by his bed and experienced an overwhelming sense of God's presence. Whether or not we feel God's presence when our way seems dark, but by faith, we know that he is there. You can take your life, or you can stake your life on that promise. He will never leave you nor forsake you. How is, <clears throat> excuse me, how has your way gone dark? Are you tempted to panic? Don't retreat. Reach out. Choose faith over fear. God has not left you alone. You are securely held in the palm of his hand. Spirit, we are one in the Lord. We are one. 
Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. 
How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who will say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You have put gladness in my heart, more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. I will both lie down in peace and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. You, Lord, are my shepherd. I shall not want. You make me to lie down in green pastures. You lead me beside the still waters. You restore my soul. You lead me in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in your house, O Lord, forever. Amen. You don't have to. You can stay. your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. What a fellowship, what a joy divine.
You may be seated. You know, I wear these glasses so I can read, but walking's a bear. Uh, <laughs> I, if I look up through my glasses, you're all a blur. Uh, our New Testament reading today is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again, so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Also, I tell you this, if two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. For where the two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among them. And if you'll join me in the responsive reading. We praise your abiding guidance, O God, for you sent us Jesus, our teacher and Messiah, to model for us the way of love for the whole universe. We offer these prayers of love on behalf of ourselves and our neighbors on behalf of your creation and your fellow creatures. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you share so graciously with us. You, you sacrificed your son so that we may be forgiven of our sins. You created everything and you allow us to partake and Care, be caretakers for it because uh, we can't take it with us. So we know that it will all come back to you, but you let us be be, be the person, the people that take care of these, and you call us to give back. So Lord, the gifts that we give today, may they always be with an open heart and with the, the goal of being able to share your love with others as you have shared with us. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
Yeah, that certainly was a, a day, wasn't it? I remember I was um, um, we were, I was at a Bible study. We had um, it was I was pastoring Sorrel Canyon, and they um, ended this Bible study and walked out, and the television was on, and and the first you know they were showing the first of the two world you know world trade towers that fell, and uh, boy it was just it, it was a defining moment for us as a as a culture, wasn't it? I mean it changed us forever. Our lives individually and our life as a as a as a nation. Yeah, the thing that um, you know that that comes to my mind as we uh, as we talk about, you know, where we've been as a nation, where we are as a people and so on. Um, is that, and what we hope it hope happened, and um, as I think Kathy mentioned, it didn't last long. The the, the repentance that was there, um, but we, you know, what we're looking for is integrity as a nation, uh, integrity as a people, and that's what we, as the people of God, that's what we bring to our culture. Um, and so, you know, what we're calling out for is integrity, is righteousness, is character, is, you know, that we will, there will be a, a lasting uh, repentance and seeking after the Lord. And to some extent that's happened, to some extent it hasn't. I would say largely it hasn't, unfortunately. Um, but at times, in times of crisis, uh, is when we're reminded of that, aren't we? But we have to ask the question, why is integrity lacking in our culture today? What, you know, what went wrong? Why, why, aren't, we, why aren't we an integrous nation? Why aren't we uh, integrous as people? Um, and there have been, there has been a, a shift, and I, you know, there's been this, this tension and this, this tension between um, <laughs> righteousness and a biblical worldview and a secular worldview. This, this is what we've been this is what we've been dealing with. And what of course the only solution is Jesus Christ. Isn't that right? The only the only solution. And we can, you know, we can try all kinds of other things, all kinds of programs, all kinds of stuff, but the solution is um, we all come to the feet of Jesus Christ. And the, unfortunately, um, you know, we, we, we often see this secularism uh, becoming more dominant. Uh, there's a ladies' home journal in Good Housekeeping. They did a survey of it. And in the period 1890 to 1910, at least a third of the articles were on character. Now, how many today? I don't, you know, I don't know what the, but I, you, I, I imagine you'd be, hard-pressed to find any articles on character and integrity and walking in righteousness before God. And so um, we, you know, so we have, we have purposely turned toward darkness. And, it, you know, um, Os Guinness says this, and he's talking about uh, the emphasis on power 
He says this, books, seminars, and magazines hawk their wares. The secrets of power in the bedroom, power in the boardroom, power on the playing field, power in the corridors, power in dressing, power in negotiations, power in relationships. We are promised the inside story of what it is, how to get it, and how to keep it. So instead of pursuing after righteousness, we're pursuing after personal power. And style has become an end in itself. Um, and we see this. I mean, we're approaching an election season. <laughs> and and, and what, what you get happening so often, particularly in an election season, and, I, and I, I know that there are, you know, politicians hire somebody to help them to project an image. Okay, so you take, you take polls and you find out what the most recent polls are and what people are looking for, and then you hire somebody to project that you can be, you know, that you can put forth that image. Instead of substance and content and character and righteousness, there's image and style. Guinness says this, style is the art of skillfully packaging illusions and projecting them with confidence as we walk down the corridors of image that make up modern societies. Never worry about facts, project an image to the public. The art of success is to create a world as you feel it to be, as you wish it to be, as you wish it into being. So we, we re-image who we are. And of course then, um, you know, we have all this stuff on identity, politics, and all that kind of stuff. But Os Guinness says this. Do you know who Os Guinness is? One of the great, uh, one of the great thinkers of our age. Um, was with uh, Francis Schaeffer at Libri, and, and out of that uh, has been a, uh, he's, he's British, um, but he's, um, I shouldn't say but, he's British and <laughs> he's, he's an incredible thinker. Uh, but he says this, few issues in our time are more important than the proper place of character for individuals and society. Few Christian contributions are more decisive and timely. Few subjects are more searching for each one of us on the personal as well as the public level. And so what I want to talk to you about is, you know, is this whole thing of integrity, character, righteousness, uh, walking, with, walking with Christ in, in integrity. And uh, I wrote a couple books on this, but it's, you know, I've, God's been calling me back to this and, and saying, you know, this is really important that we get this. Um, that, we, that we learn as Christians, we learn that um, as we walk in righteousness and we, we try to live the way that Jesus asked us to live, um, that, that we can have that kind of impact on our culture. And sometimes, you know, sometimes we feel like nobody's listening, <laughs> but <clears throat> we're thankful for those who are listening. And whether people, here's the, here's the issue, whether people are listening or not, we're still to live an integrous life. Isn't that right? All right, they may not, you know, there's going to be, there are going to be times when we know that we're shouting into the wind. And the wind seems like the wind is blowing with more intensity against us. And, and so a lot of times we feel like, boy, we're not really being hurt. But God has called us to walk in righteousness, and, um, and regardless of the consequences, regardless of whether anybody's listening, that we still walk, and we still walk with the Lord uh, in righteousness. And there's nobody who's better to, um, 
demonstrate this than Joseph in the, in the book of, uh, probably Joseph and Daniel, I think are two of the great, uh, the great people you know, in the Old Testament who lived in faith. So let's, let's turn to the story of Joseph um, in Genesis chapter 37. And we're going to go through uh, and talk about Joseph's life, and then we'll talk about uh, some applications of that. So Joseph was the first son of Jacob and Rachel, and Rachel was the favorite wife of Jacob, okay, or who later became known as Israel. So here's verse 1. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob, or Israel. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel, Jacob, Israel, same, uh, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. <laughs> Imagine growing up in a household where your brothers, you've got 11 brothers and they won't even speak to you. Um, but Rachel had died while giving birth to her second son, Benjamin. And, but Jacob especially loved Joseph. And it says that he made him a beautiful coat. And we don't know exactly what is meant by that. Uh, but one commentator I, I consulted uh, said this, that it could have been a status kind of thing. It was a, it was a coat to give him status. And, and so that uh, indicating that he was management, not labor. In other words, that his father was, was giving him a higher status than his brothers. And so out of jealousy, they hated him. Now, we don't know exactly you know, what happened, but it, it's a good explanation, I think. Well, Joseph had a dream, verse 5. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. <laughs> so, you know, he's already on the, on, the, on the bad side of these 11 brothers. And then he comes up with this dream. Now, you know, in the work that we've done in the Middle East, uh, those of you that are new, uh, been involved in the Middle East for 25 years, ministry in the Middle East, and dreams are very, very, uh, uh, very common, and people put a lot of stock in their dreams as a forth, forth telling, you know, something in their lives. And they take them much more seriously than we do. We have a dream, and it's, oh, okay, you know, I had a dream. I most of the time can't even remember it. But, <laughs> but, but, uh, but we don't put a lot of stock in it. Well, in the Middle East, they do. Uh, and sometimes they were used for giving direction. Well, hit, verse 8. His brother said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream. And he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, that, if, if the former one wasn't enough, this was... Okay, when he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? 
Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him. And, but this is an interesting statement. But his father kept the matter in mind. All right. So, so dad, Daddy Jacob or Israel, um, you know, is kind of keeping this in mind. And, but the dream, it's interesting, the dream was only that, the, that, the, that his family would bow down to him. But, you know, what, I mean, what it meant to them was that he had greater status and he was going to rule over them and so on, and they just couldn't handle that. So, verse 12, Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. <clears throat> now, Shechem was about, um, I think the next slide we see it. Uh, Shechem, uh, you can see, uh, can you see it on that one? Go to the next, next one, okay. Uh, next one, maybe. <laughs> Where is Shechem in there? Anyway, Shechem... Uh, Huh? It's somewhere in there. It's somewhere in there, yeah. Anyway, Shechem was about uh, 50 miles. They were down in, the, in what's called the Valley of Hebron. And, and Shechem was about 50 miles away. Okay, so, it, you know, it's a pretty long journey. And then they went from there to Dothan, which is another 14 miles. So it would have taken about four or five days to get to where his brothers were grazing the sheep. Okay, and you can see the travels there. And, and so uh, it would be kind of like walking to Nogales, all right? So Nogales is about 70 miles away. It would be like walking down to, okay, now you can hop in your car, you can be there an hour, an hour and a half or something like that, but, but not if you're walking, okay? And they're on foot. So he said to them, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks. Bring word back to me. Then he sent them sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, well, who are you looking for? And he said, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are? He says, well, they've moved on from here. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. Okay, another 14 miles away. And Dothan was on the normal caravan route from Gilead to Egypt. And so there, uh, they, were in the, <clears throat> they were in the valley of of Jezreel, okay, and there is, there's a king's highway that goes up along the uh, Jordan Rift Valley that goes up, uh, go, go to the next slide or back maybe, it is. Back, yeah, I guess so. Okay, yeah. Um, so the Jordan Rift Valley runs from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea, and one of the, one of the paths was up, up through that valley but, but then they would take, uh, go through the valley of Jezreel, which was, you know, a valley. Uh, a lot of the other is, is, is hill country. You know, maybe hills 2,500, 20, about, about, about like here. So you've got a hill country. But then they would go out um, and go down. The easiest way down to Egypt was down uh, along the sea. Uh, you know, it's flat and it's straight and so on. Okay? So... So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him at a distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Nice brothers, huh? 
Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes to his dreams. Now, kind of interesting that, that they're actually at this point fighting against what God has. Right? God has already, God revealed to Joseph uh, what he's going to do with, with his life. And these brothers are saying, no, it's not. You know, we're going to intervene here, and we're going to make sure that, that this is not fulfilled. And so they threw him in a cistern. Now, um, the cisterns and the brethren were there. No, I won't go there. <laughs> um, but cisterns, it, you know, I've been over there a number of times in that part of the world, and it's dry just like it is here. And there's a long season just like there is here, of dryness. You know, we have the summers, we're hopefully, we're, you know, getting out of summer. <laughs> it's, it's uh, uh, you know, it's been really hot this summer. But, and so they would do what we do, is you're going to harvest, you know, you have rain, it's about, their, their rainfall is about 13.7 inches, ours is about 12 here, and so you've got to preserve the rain that falls, so you gather together, rain harvesting is what we call it here in Tusa. And they generally had two rainy seasons, a former rain and a latter rain. And so most of the rain comes in the winter, so you've got to store up the rain that comes in the winter so that you have it uh, available in the summer. And so when Reuben heard this, verse 21, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life. Now Reuben, remember, is the oldest of the brothers. And so he has a responsibility to take care of Joseph, who is one of the younger. Now, Benjamin was younger, but younger than Joseph, uh, but he was one of the young ones. And, and you know, and generally, I, I don't know about your family, the older siblings take care of the younger ones. Isn't that right? And my wife was the oldest of four, and, and she, still has, she still has this uh, sense of responsibility for her brothers. <laughs> They'd, huh? Yeah, it's reasonable. They need it. Okay. <laughs> so Reuben, um, so Reuben, you know, is going to try to protect his, the younger brother. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. Now, we don't know whether Reuben did that in order to get in the good graces of his father. Because uh, in Genesis 35, it talks about how Reuben, the eldest of the brothers, um, uh, Genesis 35, 21, Israel moved on again and pitched his tent near Migdal Eder. <laughs> While Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard of it. Okay, that's back in chapter 35. So he might have been trying to get back in the graces of his father after what he'd done, or he could just be protecting his younger brother. We don't know. Verse 23, so Joseph came to his brothers. They stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. All right, the cistern's dry at this point, and so they threw him down in there. And of course, you know, if he's in the cistern, uh, and wild animal can come, uh, uh, you know, there were lions 
and lions could come or other animals, or he could just starve to death down there. So now the cistern was empty, there was no water. And as they sat down to eat their meal, I love this part. They, they throw their brother into the cistern. He's going to die in there. And what do they do? They sit down and eat lunch. <laughs> I mean, come on now, you know. Uh, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh. And they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. So, you know, we see in here this incredible thing where God is having his plan fulfilled. They throw him into the cistern, and then it just so happens there's a caravan of, of uh, Ishmaelites coming from Gilead down to Egypt. Okay, so, so uh, you know, God intervenes for Joseph. And in order to have his uh, plan fulfilled, Verse 26, Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother. Well, yeah, okay, good. I got that. Uh, our own flesh and blood, his brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Okay, now, the Ishmaelites and the Midianites were both kinfolk to, uh, to these brothers because the, the Midianites were the descendants of Abraham through Keturah, who was the, who was the later wife of Abraham, okay? And the Ishmaelites came through Abraham and Hagar, if you remember. Uh, Hagar had Ishmael. So they were, they were kin. And 20 shekels of silver was the normal price of a slave. So they sold their brother Joseph um, for the, the price of a slave. When Reuben returned to the sister and saw that Joseph... Now, we don't know where Reuben was at the time. Uh, Reuben was not with the other brothers, apparently, at this point, And saw that Joseph was not there. He tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Um, then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. So, so they, come, they concoct this great plan to try to fool their father into thinking that, uh, that Joseph has been, uh, you know, torn apart by some animal. Um, he recognized it and said, it, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. Now, I, you know, you got to think that the brothers, there's, there's some kind of, you know, sympathy going on with the brothers at this point, where not only did they sell off their brother, but they've caused this horrible grief on their father. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites that they sold, you know, they sold Joseph to, sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So 
So here's Joseph now, and he's a slave down in Egypt. They, they, they take him down in order to be a, a slave in Egypt. Now, Egypt is about 240 to 280 miles from Dothan. So it's a, it's a pretty, pretty lengthy trip down there. And, verse, and we go to chapter 39. Now, chapter 38 is a whole other story about Tamar and, and some other things, okay? But we get back to, then in chapter 39, we get back to Joseph. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's official, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there, okay? So he's a captain of the guard, and there's a sale, and he buys Joseph. And then it says this, the Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered. So here he is in a foreign land, and you know, he doesn't even speak the language, and he's been sold as a slave, and it says he lived in the house of the Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. So we can see right here, okay? Um, the Midianites sell Joseph to Potiphar, the captain of the guard, in, you know, down in Egypt. And Joseph, um, we see God working in Joseph to develop this skill of being a manager. And Joseph was uh, just an incredible manager. And so that everything, it says everything he did just turned to gold. I mean, he just, he knew how to manage. I don't, have any of you worked for somebody that was a really good manager? Yeah, we, we huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, uh, our, our, our good friend, and it, we both worked for Dave for many, many years. Uh, and he was, started Grace Christian School. But he was just an excellent manager. He, he was diligent. He knew what to do. Uh, and he could handle people well. And, you know, uh, and so we're still really good friends with him. And, uh, but when you work for somebody who's a really good manager, it's, it's really exciting, you know, to, to, uh, to see things done right. Well, that's the way that Joseph was. And so we can see here Joseph's integrity. And he didn't feel sorry. I mean, he could have felt sorry for himself and, you know, said, well, you know, I, here I've done the best I can, and, and now my life is over. You know, I'm down here in Egypt. I don't even speak the language, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm away from my, my family. He could have gotten very bitter, but he didn't. Instead, he decided to do what God gave him to do with integrity and righteousness. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome, <clears throat> like you guys here. Um, <laughs> what's that? Yeah, all of us are well-built and handsome. After a while, his ma master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. 
But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you were his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing, now listen to this, and sin against God? So Joseph understood that there was something greater than just doing a good job. There was something that he was actually serving Christ. He was actually a servant of the Lord. And so what he did, he did as unto the Lord. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. And so Joseph understood that you needed to do a good job and you need to walk in integrity. Um, and, you know, <laughs> I mean, you think of it. He's a, he's a young man of maybe 17, 18 years old, okay? T testosterone is flowing like, you know, I mean, you know, at that age, uh, <laughs> the guys are after the girls, okay? And he has this opportunity and he says, no, there's something more important. He saw a bigger picture. He saw a greater perspective than just satisfying the flesh. One day, he went in the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household service was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Okay? So he saw a bigger picture. He didn't compromise. He, he lived a life of integrity, even though um, she wanted him to go to bed with her. Verse 13, when he, she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has, has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. Oh boy, you know, she was a good person. When he heard me screaming for help, he left his cloak beside, him, beside me and ran out of the house. So she, she makes up this bold-faced lie about what Joseph had done. She kept his cloak beside her until the master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. So she's the good person. Joseph is bad. When his master heard this story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Now, we don't know if Potiphar believed his wife or not. Uh, some people have suggested that he put Joseph in prison, but he put him in the king's, in the, in the uh, prison of the king, which is a whole lot better place. And he could have just killed him right on the spot. But so maybe he really, you know, was kind of questioning whether his wife was telling the truth. But anyway, Joseph, after all the things that he's done in the life of integrity that he tried to live, uh, finds himself in the prison. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. So this is, you know, interesting here. 
that here he is in prison and God you know, protects Joseph, but he's also teaching him how to be a good administrator, both in working for, for Potiphar, but now in the, in the prison as the first in command, you know, second in command after the uh, warden of the, of, the, uh, of the prison. But what we see in this is Joseph's integrity, Joseph's character. Um, Chuck Swindoll said this, character, according to Charles Chuck Swindoll, is the moral, ethical, and spiritual undergirding that rests on truth, that reinforces a life in stressful times, and resists all temptations to compromise. So God wants us to live a life of integrity without compromise. And there are, you know, there are going to be temptations in all of our lives, and there have been many temptations that come to us to try to get us to, to, to take us off the right path. But character says, I am going to stay on the right path. I'm going to live a life of integrity. I am not going to compromise what God has called me to do. Dwight Moody says this, character is what you are in the dark. I love that definition. Character is what you are in the dark. All right? When nobody's looking, and when, when nobody's going to know, we still walk with integrity before God, and we don't compromise our lives. Uh, so he resisted sexual temptation. Proverbs 5, 1 and following says this, My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen well to my words of insight, that you may maintain discretion, and your lips may preserve knowledge, for the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. In the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. And it goes on from there. Okay, so, so what, what we're saying then is that Joseph uh, resisted sexual temptation, and he saw something greater. He was faithful in his work, he resisted temptation, and he walked in integrity before God. And we saw that, that Joseph was in both situations, both with Potiphar and also with a prison warden. Um, he did the very best job he could, regardless of what was going on, regardless of the circumstances. And, I, you know, I think of it, I mean, how easily it would have been to get bitter to feel sorry for yourself, to look back and, 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 you know, and question God and so on. And, and Joseph didn't do that. Joseph resisted all temptation. He did what God gave him to do, and he did it very, very well. And he understood that it was more important to have the Lord's favor to have, than to have anything that the world could offer. Moses did the same thing. Hebrew, Hebrews 11:24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. So all of us have this temptation to fulfill our immediate desires right now instead of seeing the bigger picture and going after what God has called us to do and do it well. 
And Joseph followed God's ways, not the ways of the Egyptian culture. So he's our example. Uh, James Gordon said this, a man without conviction is as weak as a door hanging on one hinge. Think of that picture. A man without conviction is as weak as a door hanging on one hinge. And Rick Warren said this, and I love this quote, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Isn't that a great quote? If you don't stand for something, if you don't have conviction, you'll fall for anything. So our character is to reflect who God is, not what our culture is. And we are facing, you know, there are, as I mentioned earlier, there are headwinds coming against us as Christians. All right? And we, we are, you know, we're facing a whole cultural storm that is aimed at us as Christians. And if there's any time that I believe that we need to, to say, you know what, I am going to live a life of integrity before God. I am not going to compromise and I'm going to live each day in order to give glory to God and in order to walk in integrity before God, in order to, to live as a Christian. And, you know, as I say, there's a lot of forces coming against us. Um, but God has called us to live in integrity. John 15, 19. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. But as it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. And I think as Christians, we need to get used to the fact that, um, that the culture is increasingly against us. We have gone from Christianity being highly regarded in the culture. I can remember as a kid, you know, if you were a Christian, you were, you know, you were regarded as, a, as, a, as an honest person, a good person to actually being kind of neutral. And now the headwinds are against us. And now we are increasingly being hated, actually hated, because we are Christians. Even though our whole mantra, the whole, the whole thing that God has called us to do is to love other people, we're hated by them. I mean, it doesn't make sense. But that's the world we live in. And I believe that God has called us um, to to live in integrity before God. Second Corinthians says this, do not be yoked together with unbelievers for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? We are called as Christians to be separate from the world in, in, in every way, in our thoughts and our attitudes, our values, our character, everything. We are called to be separate, not, you know, not to withdraw from the world. God didn't call us to withdraw and just, you know, pull them into a, a holy huddle. But God did call us to integrity, just as he called Joseph to integrity. So we need to march to a different drumbeat, wholly consecrated to God as believers. Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
So we are called, I believe, as Christians, to trust that God is in control of our lives. And just like Joseph, Joseph, you know, somehow or other, we don't know how he did it, but Joseph realized that he was serving God. And he realized that this, these events of his life, you know, here he is, this young man, and then he's thrown into his sister, and then he's, and then he's sold as a slave in Egypt, and then he's thrown into prison, and somehow through all of that, Joseph realized that God is bigger. And that God is sovereign. And that God is at work in his life, even though it looks like it looks horrible. And sometimes in our lives, we pass through times like that, don't we? And I know, you know, we're, none of us are spring chickens here, okay? <laughs> and we've been through lots of times when we look back at our lives and we say, I don't, you know, I, I was just thrown off course. And we get thrown off course because sometimes we look at our lives and we say, I can't see the thread. I, I can't see where it, where it goes. I can't put the pieces together. And I think we just, we need to, we need to reflect on Joseph's life and say, God is in charge. God is sovereign. God has your life. And as a child of God, God is at work in you to do good things for you. That he's on your side. And that he has taken your life and, and, and steering your life to make you a blessing to yourself and to other people. Even though sometimes... It doesn't look like that. And that's what Joseph was going through. It didn't always look pretty. But God did something amazing with Joseph's life. God bless you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. <coughs> <coughs>
peace.